think that, that one thing we all struggle with daily, weekly, monthly, yearly, is how to deal with sinful people. That we all know people who are full of pride or selfishness or they have harsh words or they are unkind. And it could just be that, that neighbor, that friend, that family member that you really struggle to love. But it could also be even dealing with your own heart, knowing the sin within yourself, being frustrated with yourself, frustrated with the ways that you continue to, to lash out at others, the way you continue to push others away. And so how do you deal with sinful people, whether that's people out there or the person in here? And I think that two ways that we often deal with sinful people are, are actually not very helpful. So one is anger, where we yell at the person, we lash out, we harbor bitterness within us. But then the other response is complete indifference, where we ignore them, or we just stick our head in the sand, don't pay attention to what they're doing, never confront what they're doing. And both of those are not good responses. We don't want to respond to the sin of others or even to the sin of our own heart in anger or in indifference. And so then how do we respond? And that's what we see here in this passage from Jesus. We see these two responses to sinful people that are so different from the way that we would naturally respond. And so we're going to walk through the two responses individually that Jesus weeps for sinful people, but then he also confronts sinful people. And so first we see here that that Jesus weeps for sinful people. Because look at verse 41. It says that when he drew near and saw the city, saw Jerusalem, he wept over it. It's this amazing picture of, of Jesus weeping. You know, that there's also recorded in Scripture that, that Jesus wept at the funeral of Lazarus in John 11, the shortest verse in the Bible, Jesus wept. And here he is weeping again as he enters into the city. And, and one of the, the commentators I, I looked at pointed out that we don't read of Jesus laughing, not that there's anything wrong with laughing, Uh, But we do read in scripture of Jesus weeping, that he was a man of sorrow, a man acquainted with grief. And you say, well, why then was Jesus weeping? And we're told that Jerusalem did not know what makes for peace. That here was this amazing offer of peace, peace with God, peace with others, peace with self. Uh, It was before them and they didn't know it. They didn't see it. And that their ignorance was a deep, willful ignorance because they had the temple, they had the scriptures, they had the oracles of God, they had the prophets, and yet they didn't know somehow, despite all of that, what truly makes for peace. But then Jesus is also weeping because, as verse 44 says, they didn't know the day of their visitation, that that God himself was visiting them, that, that Jesus Emmanuel, God with us, was showing up literally on their doorstep. He had just entered, that they had always thought of Jerusalem as a place where God's presence dwells in the Holy of Holies in the temple, but yet now God, in a unique way, has entered into Jerusalem in the person of Jesus, and they completely missed it. They didn't know it. 
And there was this deep, willful ignorance of the visitation of God. And therefore, Jesus weeps for Jerusalem. But he's not only weeping for the sin of the city, but he's also weeping for the consequence of that sin, what will flow from that. And the, the wages of sin is always death, is, is judgment according to the Bible. And Jesus describes a barricade being put around the city, that eventually the city of Jerusalem would be surrounded, it would be destroyed, that every stone would be torn down. There wouldn't be another stone left upon another. And of course, that is this prophetic vision of Jesus of what would actually take place in AD 70 when the Romans would surround the city of Jerusalem and they would tear it down. Blood would flow in the streets. It was a horrific event, one of the most horrific in all of human history, the, the first Holocaust, you could say, where uh, the Jewish people in Jerusalem were, were slaughtered en masse. And it's often held up in scripture as this picture of final judgment, that, that what came on Jerusalem in 70 AD was this breaking into the present moment of the reality future of judgment against sin. And that is what, what Jesus is seeing, that, that he's, he's weeping for this city, for the judgment that they were going to face. But remember, I, I said that the, the natural human response to sin and to judgment is either anger or indifference. But we don't see anger or indifference from Jesus here. He is full of, of sorrow for human sin. He weeps. He's the, the ultimate weeping prophet as he looks out over this city of lost sheep. And there's a, a painting that I love by Rembrandt. Uh, it's called uh, Jeremiah lamenting for this destruction of Jerusalem. And if you've ever seen it, you can always uh, Google it at some point. But it's this beautiful painting of Jeremiah sitting in sorrow as Jerusalem is, is taken away into captivity. And he just captures the, the sense of Jeremiah as the weeping prophet who had called the people to repentance, who had over and over again told them what would happen, but that they refused to repent, refused to turn, and then he just sits down, just breaks down in absolute sorrow. And then Jesus comes as the, the greater Jeremiah, uh, the greater weeping prophet, the, the ultimate man of sorrow who, who pours out his heart in sorrow for the sin and the judgment that is coming upon the people. But of course, if Jesus wept for Jerusalem as he entered. That means that he also weeps and is grieved for the condition of our world today. That if we look at the world and all that goes on and we grieve for the world, how much more does Jesus grieve? Because he hasn't been hardened in his heart in the ways that we have, where we become so accustomed to the sin and the evil that we think of it as normal, but from Jesus and his perspective, he sees how, how terrible and how um, out of the original design of humanity it is when he sees the, the, the pride and the, the selfishness, when he sees the, the broken promises and he sees the broken marriages and the broken families and he sees the, the pornography and he sees the addiction and the, the death and all the things that humanity just uh, clouds our world with, the, all of the, the sin that is our constant addiction that, 
that he sees it and he doesn't respond with indifference saying, I'm the clockmaker, it's their own problem, let them deal with it. Uh, but he responds in deep sorrow and concern for his people. But of course, if Jesus is the weeping prophet, weeping for Jerusalem, weeping for our current world, but that means that he is also the weeping prophet, weeping for your sin, weeping for my sin, that, that he is weeping for us as well, that, that Jesus weeps over our sin in a way that we don't, that we should, and that if only we could weep over our sin in the way that Jesus does. And as we look at the tears of Jesus for sin and for judgment, that the tears of our Lord, his, his sorrow over the brokenness of human conditions should drive us to, to repentance and faith, to turn to him, that, that we can return in grief to our Lord, but then also the joy that flows out of that when we turn to him in faith. But of course, if Jesus weeps for Jerusalem and our world, if he weeps for our sin, then do we weep for the sin of our world? When our culture or our world looks at us, or when they look at the, the church, do they see us pointing angry fingers at them in, in judgment? Or do they see us weeping over their sin? And I think that quite often Christians, each and every one of us, that we are often terrible prophets. We are angry prophets. We are indifferent prophets. We're, we're like the, the prophet Jonah, who after Nineveh repented in sackcloth and ashes, went up onto the hill angry, wishing that the judgment of God would come down onto the city. And you remember what God does, that he has this vine grow over him that shades him from the sun. And then he sends a, a worm that eats up the vine. And then Jonah is there in the heat. He's, he's angry. And, and God makes the point to Jonah. He says that you are angry and you're sad for this vine that died. But then here is this city with countless men, women, and children who don't know their right hand from their left, even many animals, and you feel no compassion, you feel no grief for the lost condition of this city, that, that Jonah was not a weeping prophet, that he was an indifferent prophet, he was an angry prophet, and that's often how we are as well, that we are the indifferent, angry prophets to the world around us when we should be the weeping, grieving prophets. And and that ultimately that godly grief that we feel for the sin of our friends and our family, our neighbors, the, the grief that we feel for our own sin, the ways that we ourselves have fallen short of the glory of God, that godly grief drives us to fervent prayer. The fervent prayer drives us to action, to love our neighbors, to serve them, to show hospitality, to pour ourselves out for the people around us. And that is how we deal with sinful people. We serve them. And that's how Jesus deals with us, that he is the, the weeping prophet who weeps for sinful people. But if that's the, the first response from our Savior, we see another response here in this text to sinful people. Because second, that Jesus confronts sinful people. He weeps for them and he confronts them. Because look at verse 45. 
it says that he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, it is written, my house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. And so, yes, Jesus is the the weeping prophet, but here he is entering into the temple presumably for the second time, because John records a very similar event at the beginning of Christ's ministry. But here he is, again, entering into the temple, driving out those who are the money changers, those who are selling, who are using the temple to to make wealth for themselves, perverting the very heart of the worship of God that was established in the Old Testament. But as we look at this, though, it presents a problem, I think. Because we see the, the sorrow of Jesus earlier. And remember I said that Jesus, he wasn't angry at the city and that he wasn't indifferent to the city. But you might say, well, maybe he is angry at the city because that seems to be what is expressed here from our Savior as he drives out the money changers. And so you say, well, how do we understand this? And I think that, that it's right to say that there is a, a biblical category of righteous anger, of righteous indignation that actually God displays in Scripture. And we see this, for instance, in Psalm 7, verse 11. It says, God is a righteous judge, a God who feels indignation every day. Or we read in 1 Kings chapter 11, verse 9, that the Lord was angry with Solomon because he had turned away from the Lord. And that phrase appears many, many times in Scripture. I did a word search on the, the Lord was angry or the, the anger of the Lord burned hot or the anger of the Lord was kindled. And you see that phrase numerous times in Scripture. But you say, well, what is the the anger of the Lord. How do we understand this? How can it possibly be, be right? Because we so often think of all anger is automatically wrong. And I think that there's a the helpful paradigm of this, that um, there's a good book called Peacemakers, um, and it's, it's basically about how Christians are to resolve conflict. Uh, and he has this spectrum of what he calls the, the slippery slope. So on the, the one side are what you could call these escape responses to sin, where you try to get away from it. And that's really what I was talking about earlier when I said indifference. But he talks about denial, where you deny there's a problem, or flight, where you just run away and you don't deal with it. Or the most extreme form of escape response is suicide. That's at the very, very end. But on the, on the other side, there's the attack response to sin. And that is what I was also talking about earlier, this, this anger instead of indifference. And that that could be assault, verbal assault, or physical assault, or, or litigation. And the most extreme on that side is murder. And so again, if, you're, if it's escape, it's suicide is the most extreme. If it's uh, engaging, murder is the most extreme. But then with, within that, there's this middle, actually, of a, a righteous response, that there can be a righteous response that actually moves away from conflict, where we negotiate or reconcile or we overlook an offense. And then there could actually be a righteous response that, that moves into conflict. It could be mediation or arbitration or 
accountability. And I mention all of that to say that, that God actually displays both of those righteous responses to sin at various times. That the scripture says that he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And that, that he is slow in his judgment, that he holds back the floodgate of judgment to give the sinners the opportunity to repent. And you see that in the ministry of Jesus, that if, if Jesus just confronted every sinful thought or action in his ministry, um, that, that it would have been a very different ministry, that, that he was so gracious to sinners. But then also, God will have times, and ultimately, in the end of history, where he's going to deal with sin. He's not going to overlook sin in the final analysis. He's going to hold it accountable. So when we talk about the, the anger of God, it is this the character of God set against all that is, that is evil. So it's not an uncontrolled rage. It's not capricious. It's not abusive. But it is this eternal hostility of God against sin. It is his eternal opposition to everything that is contrary to his nature. And it's his eternal purpose to confront and decisively deal with sin once and for all. And that is the kind of righteous anger that we see from Jesus here in our text, that he didn't ignore what was going on in the temple. He didn't overlook what was going on in the temple, but he says, no, enough. I'm going to enter the, the temple. I'm going to cleanse the temple of what is going on here. I'm going to deal with it. I'm going to drive out the money changers. Now, I think that we have to be careful, but I think that we can learn from this response of Jesus as well. That we read in scripture that uh, in Ephesians 4.26, that we can be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. As you read the pages of scripture, there can be a certain righteous anger, righteous indignation that's displayed by believers. You see it from Moses when he responds to the peoples that are turning away from God. Samuel responding to King Saul, um, David in the Psalms, Nehemiah responding to the continued sin of the people even as they're coming out of captivity. You see it in the prophets. You even see it in the Apostle Paul in the letter of Galatians. I always say that Galatians is the Apostle's most angry letter. And you, and you just sense this, this, that the false teachers are leading this young church astray. And he is deeply moved, he's deeply angry at the false teachers and what they are, are doing, but it's this, this sense of, of righteous indignation. And I think that, that we recognize this even in our relationships, that, that if somebody hurt Grace or Helen or Eloise, or if somebody was hurting one of you or leading you into some kind of anti-gospel false teaching, that that would, that would make me upset. And if I was indifferent to it, that I, I, you would wonder, okay, is that really a loving husband or a loving father or a loving pastor? That there should be the sense of being deeply grieved and moved when we see the things that are, are when we see violence and false teaching and evil. But as I said, though, we have to be extremely careful here because uh, the, we should never, ever use the, the biblical category of righteous anger as an excuse to unload our frustration on other people and to feel justified doing it. And that 
as much as we do see a category of true righteous anger in scripture, that we see much more us being warned about the danger of anger. Uh, and I'll, I'll read a couple passages here. I think I'm going to read a number just because I think together they show how much scripture talks about this. Romans 12, 19. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Proverbs 20, 22. Do not say, I will repay evil. Wait for the Lord, he will deliver you. Matthew 5, 39. Do not resist the one who is evil, but if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. Psalm 37, 8. Refrain from anger, forsake wrath. Fret not yourself, it tends only to evil. Proverbs 14, 29. Whoever is slow to anger has great understanding, but he who has a hasty temper exalts folly. Or Proverbs 16.32, whoever is slow to anger is better than the mighty, and he who rules his spirit than he who takes the city. Or Proverbs 19.11, good sense makes one slow to anger, and it is glory to overlook an offense. Or James 1.19, know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. And so again, when we, we look at this example from Jesus here, we have to be careful that, that as believers, we do not have an excuse to, to hold on to, to anger or bitterness or to blow up at, at others, that, that we are called to give our anger to the Lord in, in prayer, to, to, to give those things to him, knowing that he is the, the true judge. But at the same time, there are moments where we follow the example of Christ, where it's, where it's not a, a rage or the kind of sinful anger, but, but where instead of overlooking, we're called to actually confront sin in our world, and that we are called to that. Again, I, I read some passages on the danger of anger, but here are a few other verses. Of, this is Luke 17, 3. If your brother sins, rebuke him. If he repents, forgive him. Again, there, there are times to enter into conflict. Uh, or 1 Timothy 5.20. Paul says that as for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all so that the rest may stand in fear. Or Titus 1.9, that the pastor must hold firm to the trustworthy word is taught so that he may be able to give instruction and sound doctrine and also rebuke those who contradict it. And so again... There are times where, I mean, we're always grieving at the sin, uh, but there are times where we, we pull back, we overlook, we don't engage, but there are also times where, no, the sin needs to be confronted, and that, and that if we do not confront it, that we're actually disobeying, that, that we're, we're, we're called to, to deal with a wrong, to, to seek to a wrong to be righted. And of course, we have to pray for deep wisdom from the Lord, to know the difference. But then as we, we wrap up today, then as we, as we pull together these two themes of weeping for sin and confronting sin that we see from Jesus, that, that both of these themes come together, as do most biblical themes, in the cross of Christ. Because as we reflect on Jesus 
pouring himself out for us on the cross. What we see symbolized in this meal in the Lord's Supper that we'll take in a moment, that, that nothing should make us weep and grieve for sin like the cross of Christ. Because it shows what does our sin deserve? It brings judgment, but it brings the judgment of God on Jesus himself, that the Son of God dies for sin, the, the dark, deep evil of sin that we grieve for. But then at the same time, the cross is where we see the ultimate confrontation with sin. Because that is how, why God sent Jesus into the world, not to just be angry at sin, not to overlook sin, but to, as, as he pours out his life for us to take the wrath of God in our place, to, to confront sin, to, to, to decisively defeat sin and death and, and the devil. And that is also what he promises to do for our hearts, that, that we are called the temple of the Holy Spirit, and that Jesus comes in and cleanses the idolatry out of the heart of the temple. And thankfully, as the, the, the temple of the Holy Spirit and ourselves, that Jesus does that for us as well. And it's his grace that, that he comes to us. He, he confronts the sin and idolatry within us, that, that he, he cleanses our hearts as homes of the Holy Spirit to be able to worship him as we, as we turn from repentance and faith onto to Jesus. And one day, he promises to take the whole world, to turn the whole world into a glorious temple to, to decisively cleanse evil out of the temple of the world. And that's a picture of new, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven as this pure, spotless bride. There's no evil, no sorrow, no pain, but it's all been made right. And that's what we read in Isaiah 11, that they shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Now, as we come then to this meal, we reflect, of course, on our own sin. We feel the, the grief and the sorrow. We know Christ's grief. With, it pushes us to examine our hearts. Um, are we walking with the Lord? Have we repented and trusted in him? And reminds us of the confrontation of God with sin and confronting our own sin. Are we holding on to bitterness? Are we holding on to persistent patterns of, of rebellion in our own heart and doing business with that? before the Lord. And if you're here and you've never repented of your sins and, and trusted in Jesus, we are thankful that you're here. We always want hope to be a place for people to explore what Christianity is about. But this meal um, is for people who, who see their sin, who weep for their sin, who have seen the cleansing hand of, of Jesus as they repent and trust in him for salvation. And so it would actually be an act of hypocrisy to take this meal without believing in Jesus and that it would be more spiritually damaging than good. Uh, but uh, for the rest, you don't have to be a member of Hope Presbyterian Church. You don't have to be a member of a Presbyterian church. Uh, but to be one who is trusting in Jesus, to have made that public by being part of a church that, that preaches uh, the gospel. And then as we, we come to this, let's just take a moment and then profess this faith, what it is that we believe as we come to this meal. And, and so if you look on page 8 in your, your order of worship, we have the, the Nicene Creed. This is one of the most clear statements of the, the heart of Christianity, what we believe about God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So please read with me. I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, 
maker of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made, who for us men and for our salvation came down from heaven, was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary, and was made man. He was crucified also for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried. And the third day he rose again, according to the scriptures, and ascended into heaven, and sits at the right hand of the Father, and he shall come again with glory to judge the quick and the dead, whose kingdom shall have no end. And I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son together is worshipped and glorified, who spoke by the prophets. And I believe in one Catholic church. I acknowledge one baptism for the remission of sins, and I look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. Because on the night that our Savior was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup and said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, poured out for the forgiveness of sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Now, the way that it'll work is, is we can come forward. Just remember to keep your mask on and be mindful of the social distance with others you come up. We can come up this way. Uh, you can grab one of the cups off the table. And, and, and in case you weren't here when we did it before, uh, the, you peel the first layer, and there's the wafer. And then you pull, pull the other one, and you can get to the, the juice. So you can pick, grab one, go back to your chair, then we'll take it together at the end. And, and in the ones that look like this, um, there's uh, gluten-free if um, inside of there, if that's something that, that you need. And then after you, we, we take it together, uh, we'll have a trash can in the back. Um, you can uh, just throw it away, and we'll have some hand sanitizer there as well for you. Uh, but let's pray together.